Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 67, Pleasure Island Part 2. We'll be taking you back to the... Well, Pleasure Island did some things, and then they had to real quickly change some things, and Hal's going to lead us through that in a little bit, so... I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me, as always, on this month's podcast, coming in from Ohio, Mr. J.T. Couser. How are you doing tonight, J.T.? I am great. Recording on a Friday night. It's, yeah. It's like a it's like a Pleasure Island night, almost. That's for some right. It's got, it might be New Year's by the time we get to this. You know, we got about three and a half hours to go, so it'll probably <laughs> yes. be New Year's when we close this out. We'll Start do a little countdown. countdown. Yeah, yeah, that'll be great. All right, and leading us tonight, Mr. Hal Bowers, coming in from Tampa. How are you doing tonight, Hal? Aloha, I'm doing really well. Excellent. I'm ready to go. Yeah, yeah, you've been re- yeah. doing research on this. I I'm excited for this because uh it is it's really the the second half of Pleasure Island that I remember and um you know, we told the Lenny story last month. Nobody wanted the Lenny shirt, but that's okay. But uh Lenny <laughs> and the Magic Bee. But um certainly uh I, I there's a lot I remember about this and this is peak 90s when we get to it i'm so excited for this it, so. is this is and we're going to concentrate just on we're not even get into the 2000s tonight we're just going to talk about when things really blew up at pleasure island in the 90s it literally in in figuratively and literally right yes <laughs> things blew up so all right and as always mr brian p miles coming in from pennsylvania home of dutch pretzel land and I, brian i shared you those pretzels i had arrive i you know those those are awesome those i can't even remember the name of them now Greetings and salutations. You're talking about unique pretzels. Unique pretzels. That's and they it. They have the dark ones, mm-hmm. and they're split tops. They're they're uh, tasty uh, hard pretzels that uh, are very hard in some cases. They're, they're yeah. tough on some people's teeth, but uh, big big popular uh, Lancaster County specialty here in uh, Pennsylvania, the Keystone State. Best part, I was able to order like twelve bags of them delivered to my door, which was fantastic. They were good for yeah. like seven months. I put them down away in the pantry. We're good. Yeah, when I was a younger man, I enjoyed the extra salt version. Ooh. When I had, you know, when you just ate with reckless abandon, right. you didn't worry about like getting old someday or your your uh, salt levels, <laughs> your sodium levels. <laughs> Uh, but they were literally, I mean, I mean, they're on the site. You can see them. They're just, they're just caked in salt yeah. and they were delicious, but I couldn't possibly eat one now. You guys ever go to the sporting event and you get the soft pretzel and it is loaded with salt too. You wind up like you could, you could there's, melt your driveway with it. There's always three of them in there. Yes. Though. It's like three of them going around. One has all the salt and then the other have like two granules of salt <laughs> on right. it and that's it. What, why uh, is it the Keystone State, Brian? Uh, great question. And if I was still in third grade, I'd probably remember. <laughs> so according to Wikipedia, it's the Keystone State because it was in the middle of the colonies and because Pennsylvania has held a key position in the economic, social, and political development of the United States. And there the Keystone is. is the middle piece of an arch. So yeah, you guys are between. important. There we go. 
played our certainly played our role in history. That's right. Certainly have. Well, JT, did anybody write to us from the Keystone State tonight? Oh boy, from the Keystone State, that I don't know. I don't have these. I don't look at the return address. They don't labels. tell us where they're yeah, from. Send so your just, area code and postal address to. <laughs> you can tell us the IPs. I'm sure that would be the IP addresses would be <laughs> almost as interesting as the states. I'm sure. Funny. This just in from one ninety five dot one. Funny. They're they're all using a VPN from Canada. I don't know why. <laughs> All right, so first off, I'm going to take us back to July of 2020 for this one. Ooh, rewind. Um, I actually, sometimes when we get tweets and we get messages, I will do the two-button press on my iPhone, screenshot it, and save it. Well, this one I just happened to be looking back and found it in uh, Jimmy Tucker. I'm sorry, yours got, you know, in the bottom of the mailbag of my phone, and it uh, it's now resurfaced. Jimmy Tucker shared with us a picture of... Walt Disney World, The First Decade. The book, it's kind of like got a bluish, tealish cover. He says, hey, yep. guys, love the show. I wanted to see if you had more info besides uh, this is from the 10th anniversary. He uh, grabbed it for 75 cents. So does anybody have any info on that book? Uh, have you guys looked through it, leafed through that? Uh, anything about that? Well, I'm sure Hal does. But first off, it's not the 10th anniversary. No, it's, it's not. It's the 10th centennial. Oh. <laughs> Brian is Brian is correct. So, yep that that book was a hardcover pictorial souvenir, and they did one with updates about every ten years. So that one was the first one, uh, the blue cover. Then when Epcot uh, came on, they did a second one. They updated it, and it has a I think a green cover with Epcot Center kind of uh, embossed on it, the Spaceship Earth. And then uh, in the next ten years later, uh, they did a thirty year one. Um, and so, yeah, they've, I don't think they did one at, no, they did do one at 40. So yeah, they've, they've come out with one of these about every 40 years. And it's kind of like the big eight and a half by 11, uh, hardcover version of their pictorial souvenir, um, different format, but lots of pictures. They're really fun to look at because you can really see how, you know, the parks have changed over the years. So 75 cents, that's a great deal. And what they emphasized at the time, you know, you, 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 from the makeup of the photos, Usually when they're covering current park things, it's fun to go back and say, well, yeah, but it's funny. At the 25th anniversary, they were talking about this, that, and the other thing, all of which are things that are gone from the parks now, but were like a big deal. So I have two of them here. I, I have one of the ones uh, from 1986, which has a it's green with a copper cover on it. And um, also the 20th, they made another one, which had some blue and, and silver. Um I think I remember when I had these two, I would flip through them and try to see what had changed because they wound up using the same photos, similar to the, the pictorial souvenirs, right? You know, you would flip through and all the pages, they didn't do many edits from, from time to time. Although I will say the 20th is much bigger, much thicker because um, it's got the studios included on it. So I wonder if there's any Pleasure Island in here. The 20th was always sitting in our TV cabinet, you know, back when you had a TV oh. cabinet and, you know, some shelving and stuff. It was always sitting there just ready to go. And now it's behind me here in the office. It was oak and had a 32-inch Sony sitting in it? Oh, I think we were 27 in that era. 27. That okay, you didn't make it to the 32. Oh, Pleasure Island's in here. Look at this. Yeah. The 20th is in what, 91, right? If I'm 91, doing my math, correct. we carry 10 plus another 10 is 91. Okay. So it was, it was there. All right, well, Jimmy, uh, you waited long enough. We, we 
gave you the answer uh, you're looking for. That's a great find for 75 cents, though, for sure. So now you work your way up the 15th and the 20th. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks for being patient. Next one. Um, there's a couple names attached to this email, but I've gathered it's Lainey from Boston. Lainey writes us uh, her, her message. says, success. Thanks, guys. Come on over to Ipswich, and we can have clam box clams and then pie for dessert. And she sent us a picture, which... Todd and I are on our way. We will share this picture. She did a nice background fade. Uh, I mean, geez, even the napkin there under the fork and the whole thing is... I loved how perfect the whipped cream on top. Oh, doesn't that look like a perfect little dollop on there? Yeah. And a a slice of lime in the the whipped cream. The view from where she was... I hope that's your your uh, your your decks, Laney. So yeah. So last month, Laney asked us for the uh, key lime chiffon pie recipe from the Polynesian of the late '70s, early '80s era, and we had it, and we shared it with her, and said, "Make sure you send a photo." And uh, this past week, she did. So it made us all hungry. Mm-hmm. Looks good. I might have to make that pie myself. It seems like a nice, refreshing summer treat. So thank you, Lainey, for that. We will uh, we'll put that in the show notes so everybody can see that. That is a great, uh, modern, perfect example of a recipe that's that's on our site, and I'm happy to share it. Next up is John Satarski. John says, I was just listening to the most recent podcast. Y'all were talking about different shapes of butter. Mickey, the Walt Disney World logo, the Epcot logo, he remembers the butter at the Brown Derby that was shaped like little derby hats. And as I was reading this, as he yeah. said, little brown derby, I was like, oh, my gosh, say little derby hats. And he said it. And I, uh, I remember those, too. He says they were awesome butter, uh, but before the awesome butter, now with the salt. So I do remember that. And I feel like at some point the desserts used to come with uh, derby shaped chocolates, derby hat shaped chocolates. I have a. Vague recollection of that uh, topping like ice cream or pie or something there. And that is uh, opening day restaurant, right? Brown Derby? It is. Yeah, that's that's one of those ones that I, I go into and I it's it gives you that good feeling like, oh, this was here when the park opened and here we are. Okay, next up is Paul Zimmerman. He says, hey guys, catching up on the last episode and when you talked about this clown i had to go look at it because in my mind it didn't look that bad upon at the boardwalk it, right yeah. yes he's referring to boardwalk upon seeing it i realized my mind was wrong the slide looks downright horror movie scary and i'm not uh, someone who was ever afraid of clowns but i'm writing because it looks like the spitting image of bozo the clown from wgn bozo no b-o-z-o sorry uh... You've never heard of Bozo the Clown? No. How could you not know who Bozo the Clown is? I don't know. I just don't. How can you call yourself a clown and not know who Bozo is? Hey, man, what are you hassling me for? This is just a gig. It's not my life. I don't know who Bozo is. What, is he a clown? Is he a clown? What, are you kidding me? Well, what is he? Yes, he's a clown. All right, so what's the big deal? There's millions of clowns. Uh, He says there's a coincidence, or do they license a franchise right to use Bozo? Uh, I, I'm going to guess no, they didn't. I think that just the clown and the boardwalk and the whole thing was just a, a coincidence. I don't think that was actually Bozo, but I'm sure I could be told I'm wrong like normal on here. That would not seem to be a good use of licensing funds <laughs> no. since, I mean, the clowns are pretty generic. So yeah, it would be I'm guessing of, not. It'd be out of theme to do Bozo. 
It, yeah. It, now, now SpaghettiOs, maybe they license them for the hair because <laughs> it, it did look like SpaghettiO hair without the meatballs. But um, it is now all in the dumpster, the last we saw, and it's now uh, Mickey's Keister Coaster. So uh, that's I, which I haven't seen in person yet, but uh, definitely slightly more excited to see that than the clown. Nightmare fuel removed, right? Yes, you spit out of this clown's mouth while you swim. We'll always have those two seats, though. Those like chairs yes. inside the boardwalk with the weird faces in them. Oh, Todd! One of them is named Todd. Oh, really? Oh, yes. If you turn the chair around, it's written on the back. It's named Todd. Did not know that. Um, next next time you're there, Todd, I want a photo. Okay, so next up, and this one, um, I'm going to read it from an old pal of ours, but uh, this this was sent to us from multiple people. Our old buddy Joe Barlow, and Joe, I thought of you the other day as I was walking into our local Menards, and there's a, there's a turnstile, and I did a quick double take, hoping you didn't lock it for me to go through the turnstile, and it, I went through safely. Um, Joe says he's enjoying the podcast at Pinocchio Village House. There is an upstairs seating outside on the patio. And uh, above the outdoor seating, he says that whole table holds two to three. You can set up and people watch, see the merry-go-round, uh, the carousel. Uh, unfortunately, it's not always open. And um, Joe, that that is the outside area, but there is also we had a lot of responses on the yeah. indoor seating. Yeah, we got emails and tweets, and uh, I got direct messages and texts. I've assured them next time I will stick to my guns because I'm like, oh, I was an upstairs eating. Everybody shouted me down last month, and I so I immediately retreated, figuring I must have had it confused with something else because I I mean I think I've only eaten in there once or twice and. 30 some years so i i wasn't like it wasn't a hill i was ready to die on but i'm glad to have been vindicated yes so there is upstairs uh seasonal outside sounds like possibly and uh you know it's it's smaller but it is there so thanks everybody for the update the correction and uh we'll see you upstairs at pinocchio's village house one day for sure we'll have our next event there and it'll hold <laughs> 10 of people <laughs> squeeze in everybody Next up, uh, and this is another one where I feel like we had a few uh, people on the same similar tone, similar subject. This is from Linda Rodriguez. Linda actually called, left us a voicemail. And uh, Linda, the one thing she said, actually, I'm just calling to make sure that everybody's okay because typically, you know, you usually do a podcast every month. And uh, it's been about six weeks and she hasn't heard from us. So we didn't all uh, perish in a plane crash or a car accident in an old station wagon by Ford. Uh, we did the, what was the last episode? Retro Food. Retro Food did, Part 2, yeah. Yeah, Retro Food Part 2. Then we did Movie Night. And uh, we kind of just, you know, just doing what we do. Just had some stuff in between there, and now we're, we're back. So, um, what wait, what was before Retro Food? That was the big gap, though. Ple- pleasure Island pleasure yeah. Part 1. It's really all my fault, JT. Be- that between, is correct. It's, ta- it's Hal's fault. Between doing this, between all the research on this and then having my microphone backwards the last time and who knows what else. It's I, I threw off the whole schedule. So I'm I'm taking accountability for this. And I promise that the next episode, Pleasure Island Part 3, will be much faster incoming than, uh, than the gap between this one. So plan for it in August. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And we do have some new editing uh, uh, tweaks to the software that we did to, so that we can process things faster, too, which uh, we've learned a lot of things over the past couple of years. So the editing is going much faster now once we once we secure the time to do it. That's the challenge. That's the thing, the time. So thanks, Linda, for reaching out. Thanks to everybody else. Um, oh, and one last thing, JT, to all the people who tweeted me about the German restaurant that I mentioned. It, as 
the ones that were in malls in the Orlando area. I, we actually did have several people tweet saying, like, was it Wunderbar? Was it... And there was a, surprisingly num- a surprising number of small German restaurants in malls still across America. So this must have been a big thing at one point. Um, Rick Note um, sent a tweet mentioning that there is still a Mr. Dunderbuck's in the Lehigh Valley Mall oh. in Pennsylvania. So um, that's the one that I ate at then. That's the one that you I, know. I, I had no idea. Is that the one you were talking about? Yes. So that that used to be a chain in the 70s wow. and 80s. There were ones at, there was one at the Altamont Mall, I found out, um, confirmed. That's where I remember seeing it. There was one at a mall in Daytona Beach, which apparently after the the downturn of, of popularity of German restaurants, um, somebody bought, uh, it looks like the Dunderbox chain kind of went under and then the franchise owners bought out the restaurants from the franchisee and then went independent and some kept the Dunderbox name and some didn't. But the one in Daytona, now that beer is hugely popular, it got so popular that they actually ran out of space in their mall store and they've now opened a freestanding Dunderbox in Daytona and it's humongously popular. So here's a funny thing that I remember uh, now that you're jogging my memory and connecting the two. When I ate there, which was three or four years ago, I probably have pictures somewhere. uh, The menu had the orange wheat beer that they serve at Germany and Epcot that everybody likes. That's the grapefruit Schofferhofer. Okay, so it, on the menu at this place in Allentown, it's as, as um, you know, only ever only served elsewhere at Epcot Center in the German Pavilion. And I was like, oh, all right, you know, look at this. I, now I'm going to have to find it because that's surprising I, I, because I can buy that at my local grocery store here in a four pack. Like, it's could you buy it four years ago or five years ago? I don't, I, I don't know, but it's it's pretty common now. And there's even a. Uh, Gosh, what's the, an orange? Or they have a different flavor now too, not just grapefruit. There's something else. Dunderbacks Market Cafe is the one that's in the Lehigh Valley Mall. That's the one I went to, and obviously we were talking about the same place. It's amazing. The more you know. Here's the beer menu. Hang on, I'm gonna look it, look it up <laughs> since we're here. Oh, it's just the special month. It's a it's a cool can. It's not very high in alcohol content, but the the can has got like a matte finish. It feels really nice in your hand if you're into you know sensory issues like I have. It's and <laughs> what is that one called, JT? It's, uh, it's a uh, Schaffer Hoffer. It's I, I'm sure there's a German way to pronounce that, but I'm a yeah. American Joe here. That's I, I. It's funny because I'm I'm just scrolling through here. I just remember that specifically having that notation on the menu, and I was like, huh. Claim to fame. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's a nice, uh, like, it's one of those, what's the... I, I, you know, people I mean, have I, those beers that have lemon in it, like lemonade, yeah. like a shandy. Yeah, like a shandy type thing. Yeah, it's, it's a nice hot day beer, but... Show, how did you pronounce? Schofferhofer? It looks like pink, Schofferhofer. <laughs> pink Grapefruit Weiss Bar, yep, yep. which is wheat beer. The famous German beer served at Epcot. 12-ounce Pilsner, 16-ounce Stein, da 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 it's uh, if you want a tall boy, it's eight ninety five, or you can get a six pack takeout. There you go. But it's right here on the menu. It's the famous beer served at Epcot. So are you saying they're of a Floridian or- origin? There, how is the 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 restaurants? Uh, that I don't know, but there certainly seem to be a lot of them in Florida, <sighs> and then Pennsylvania, and there was one in like 
North Carolina or somewhere. So, so this this one is independently owned and family run. Uh, it opened on November 11th, 1977, and is the oldest independently owned and operated business in the Lehigh Valley Mall. Wow. Now I'm looking to see if there's a relation to these other ones, because obviously there was at one point. And yeah. It's like when there was like the last Bennigans in the country that wasn't like <laughs> part, <laughs> wasn't part of the chain. Imagine the pressure of being the last Bennigans. It's like the last well, I went to a, I went to a ground round that was near here. And it was one of like five left in the country. And like you walked in and it was, you know, it was like when they had those uh, Federation of Independent States over there and in uh, in the Baltics because <laughs> there was because there was no like unifying government. Uh, so you got to go to the ground round and then stop by the blockbuster, the last blockbuster yeah. and pick up a video. Amazing. Well, thank you, everyone, for those tweets about the German restaurants. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to do an event at Dunderbox in the Lehigh Valley Mall. (laughs) Okay, last one here. This is from Matthew Driftmeyer. He says, hey, guys, I've written in before, but now I get to do part of my actual job. He works for the Space Foundation Discovery Center at Space Museum and Science Center in Colorado Springs. In our collection, we have NASA's Scott Carpenter Space Analog Station, and he attached a picture. It's basically an undersea research station NASA built. He says as part of its outreach mission, it spent some time at Epcot, uh, 97 and 98, in that range. He says, all that we've heard is that uh, it was at Epcot in the fall of 97 through winter of 98. Unfortunately, it has an internet black hole, and they don't really know much about it. So they're looking for info from us or listeners about where it was at Epcot and if anybody has any photos of it. He'd love to see, you know, the history. Was it at Interventions? Was it Living Seas? And what it looked like on display. Any help would be appreciated. So do you guys know about this or uh, maybe a listener does if you don't? Um, we're going to do a little more research on this. I, I vaguely remember seeing it. Um, I was there in April 98, which fits in perfectly with the fall 97 through winter 98 that uh, Matthew was speaking of. So um, we'll do a little more digging on this and see if we can get uh, a little more information on it. Um, I, I'm trying to remember if it was at Adventions or, or Living Seas as well. Um, there's Really, when you think about it, other than the floor, there's not so much exhibit space at Living Seas. So I almost gravitate towards having uh, thinking it was at Interventions or something like that. But I, I vaguely Ooh, remember big. seeing this. Yeah, it's it's not small. Huh. And think about that. How are you going to get that into Living Seas too other than taking it's it That's true. Is there, a, is there a door that big to, to haul that thing in? Yeah, because we know Interventions had different ways of getting stuff in. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we'll definitely, definitely do some more research on this and see what we can find out. Yeah, if you're listening, I'll have a link right here in the email. You can click it and just view that photo, and it might jog your memory um, right in the show notes there. And then if you if you have a picture of it, I mean, I there has to be somebody out there that got a photo with it. I mean, there's everybody got photos with this stuff, and they're on vacation. So share, let us know, and share your photo with us too for for Matthew's uh, his his career here. He need it's 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 depending on this photo search. So. Um, so that's what's happening in the listener mail bag. Lots going on. Thank you, everybody, for all the messages. We appreciate your concerns, your uh, questions, the Pinocchio um, answers, and also uh, help us with uh, Matthew's hard target search here on the photos. If you uh, want to reach out to us, though, podcast at retrowdw.com is our email. You can also send us a direct message on any of the socials, and hopefully we will get to it faster than I got to that first one today. 
and uh, let us know. You could end up on the show, or you could just get a uh, message back from one of us letting you know, hey, yeah, we know what's going on there. So thanks a lot, everybody. All right, well, it's time for this month's main topic, and uh, as we promised at the top of the show here, we're going to be taking you back to Pleasure Island in part two of our ongoing series of the history of Pleasure Island, and uh, how it took us through part one about the Mr. Mayweather and the history of it, and we talked a little bit about how it got built and what, how things have changed there uh, in terms of the layout, but we never really got to, I guess, what you could say, uh, Mr. Pleasure's heyday, if you will, which was uh, uh, basically from a little bit after opening, year or so after opening up until its closure, and really kind of into the mid to late 90s before it really started to, to fizzle out and change. Um, so how is back again, as always this month, with a, with more research and uh, how we're going to go through the Pleasure Island that I think most people who are listening to this podcast and most people who are listening that uh, uh, either went to, experienced, or read about because it was the longest running period and it had the biggest and best stuff that it had to offer. And it was loud, it was 90s, it was obnoxious, it was in your face, and uh, it was a lot of fun as well, so... I was going to say, and a lot of fun. Yeah. That was the uh, that was the key thing. So, as Todd mentioned in part one, we talked about the development of Pleasure Island, Disney's innovative shopping, dining, nightclub district, uh, which opened up in 1989 at the Disney Village Marketplace, which is now the landing at Disney Springs. Yep. So, uh, at this part, we'll we'll talk about the venue's initial failure because it was not a, a big hit right out of the gate. Um, it's turnaround and. Uh, kind of how it did through the through the 90s so um if you have not listened to part one here is a quick recap um rosie o'grady's church street station a complex of bars nightclubs and stores in downtown orlando had become the third most popular attraction in orlando behind the magic kingdom and sea world and so disney now under the control of michael eisner wanted a piece of the action uh, and their answer to that was to build a mixed-use entertainment complex adjacent to Walt Disney World's already popular shopping village in hopes of luring the conventioneers, late-night revelers, and Orlando residents away from Church Street. Uh, but within a few months, it was obvious that that wasn't happening, or at least not to the level of Disney management's expectations. Pleasure Island was making a jackass out of them. <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah. So, so publicly, there's never been an official rationale to why Pleasure Island had a shaky start. But I think that we can make some reasonable guesses due to the issues that it faced. And guys, jump in here if you think of anything or can extend on any any of my speculation. Yeah, so sure. one was access. So guests were free to wander through Pleasure Island day and night to shop and eat. Uh, but you needed a ticket to get into the clubs. So that put the responsibility on the frontline cast members to upsell the guests to a ticket to get into the club. So I think it's very likely that only a small percentage of guests would buy a ticket under those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I can't imagine somebody being there at the village marketplace. You walk over, you do a little shopping, you might have lunch. Is it, well, why am I going to come back tonight? I, you know, I'm going back to my hotel. I'm going to rest. <laughs> We're going to the park yeah. tomorrow. You know, what, what's in it for me? Yeah, if you don't know what Pleasure Island is and you're just walk, it just looks like another set of buildings. And then yeah. when you go up to the door of this place, someone's like, no, you need a ticket. You're like, oh, okay, well, never mind. And then you just keep walking. It's really interesting and in, in the dynamic that still continued after it was more successful of 
something that is totally different at night than it is during the day, and the access is totally different during the day than it is at night. It's foreign to most people who are visiting Walt Disney World. Everything there has always been open during the day, and this was a, you know, initially you had to get that word out that it was indeed different and was indeed changing as as the day wore on. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's that's tough. Um, another thing was the pricing. So, an mm. opening Pleasure Island had three tiers of pricing. You could do one club for six dollars, three clubs for ten dollars, or all six clubs for fourteen ninety five. And if you have an e ticket on a Tuesday, <laughs> that's you know so, that's, a, that's a good point. How that that's confusing right there, right? Just it is, it is. Like, where and am I going to go? And, yeah, and and if you don't know anything about the clubs, it's like then you're just kind of guessing. Yeah. Okay, which one of these is good? You don't know. And you walk in, um, it's like this isn't my type, and I'm out of here. Yeah, and I just blew blew ten bucks. Yeah, so the the fourteen ninety five that would be thirty two twenty in today's yeah. uh, dollars once month. So if you think about it, if you know if, if you walked into a place and they're like, oh, it's thirty two dollars, would you? Yeah, and know. I think you mentioned on the last episode about this that a standard club cover back then was three or four dollars, right. right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, were there Even, minimums too? Drink minimums? There were not. There were not. Okay, there were not. Um, and. By contrast, Rosie O'Grady's was like a pay one price and get into all the clubs for free. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to compete directly with Rosie O'Grady's, having that different kind of a pricing structure kind of, right. I think, puts you at a disadvantage. Now, did moving them to, because it really, Pleasure Island really became one of those fun in the sun or fun tickets or add-on tickets later on where, you know, half was River Country, half was Pleasure Island. Do you feel that was part of the marketing to get it there too, where you you know you buy your River Country ticket or your Typhoon Lou ticket? Because there were where they were split on each side, right? Um, or you yeah. got, you know, you bought a seven day ticket and you got seven fun visits, and not only was Typhoon Lagoon or River Country built in, but you also you could go to Pleasure Island one of these. So that was that a method to get them in too? I mean, I will say there that is certainly a tactic to get people to mm. show. If you just give them admission somewhere, that's certainly going to be an incentive for them to go and visit. Sure, sure. And it, it yeah. gives more quote unquote value to the ticket you're buying if, if from a perception standpoint. When you're standing there at the Epcot ticket booth, the kids are yelling at you, it's 95 degrees and you got to get the family inside. All right, we'll go with the one that gets us into Pleasure Island. Just give too. me everything. Exactly. Yeah, kids yeah. can't go in, but they don't even know. Yeah. And I, and I think the third thing that was kind of difficult for them was the fact that there were kids in bars and yeah. around alcohol. So even though Rick Rothschild intended Pleasure Island to be a place for families to visit, the type of crowd that visited Church Street Station likely found the presence of kids and clubs like off-putting. Mm. Like you're there to like you know dance and have fun and like meet a lady or be out with your lady or your guy and like you don't want like a six-year-old staring at you <laughs> while you're. <laughs> so when like, did the, when it was when it first opened? How refresh me? Was it twenty-one and up only when it opened? Then it went to eighteen and up and twenty-one for alcohol. When it opened, it was all ages. You could take in kids, you you know, there were still some restrictions in the clubs themselves, like you had to be 21 to go into mannequins. But now this sort of uh, no kids uh, free for all really only lasted for about a year. Uh, And after that, they went back to the previous policy of letting kids onto the island who were under 18. Um, But they had to be accompanied by adults and they still had age restrictions in clubs like Cage and Mannequins where you had to be 21 and over only. So uh, I don't know if Disney themselves maybe felt like they pushed the envelope a little bit too far. Uh, maybe they thought things got out of hand. So they they kept the outdoor 
liquor stands that were available outside of the attractions, but they they kind of pulled back on things like the ice luges and the buckets of beer outside. And so I think they found, you know, what was a good balance between profitability and uh, social acceptability that they went forward with uh, from that point on. Eisner put together a team and informed people uh, both inside and outside of the company to fix Pleasure Island. And in charge of that transition is a gentleman named Arthur Levitt, who met Michael Eisner in 1984 while Levitt was working as a furniture salesman and Eisner was couch shopping. (laughs) Well, okay, that's a good way. I mean, every every great executive story has a beginning, right? Yeah. Uh, So somehow uh, Levitt managed to talk himself into having dinner with Eisner that day. And... uh, by the end of dinner, um, he was hired as the director of corporate projects and eventually became Eisner and Frank Wells' assistant. That's amazing. Isn't it crazy? Um, he had no formal business training, but he Eisner just liked his chutzpah. And uh, there's a quote from Eisner in an article about Levitt saying that, you know, in the first meeting, you know, Eisner recognized that this guy was a talent. And so they nurtured him for three years as their assistant. And when they needed someone to manage this turnaround for Pleasure Island, they chose him, even though he had no business knowledge at all. He had a degree in green biology, but I guess he knew how to get stuff done. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, joining that team was a gentleman by the name of uh, Robert McCarthy, who managed nightclubs in Minneapolis and Atlanta before joining Walt Disney World's resort division in 1989 to manage high volume restaurants. So I assume he probably handled the food and beverage side of things. And then uh, Arthur Levitt hired a concert promoter from California named Rick Baseman to, uh, quoting Mr. Baseman, go f*** this place up. (laughs) (laughs) And Todd, I'm sorry about. It. I know you'll have to, you'll have to bleep we'll put the that. Beep in. That's okay. That's okay. It's such a good quote. It's perfect. Uh, I had to leave that in there. Absolutely. Um, so they and and their team, you know, began a three year long program to reimagine Pre- Pleasure Island into the more profitable form that we finally look back on today. Um, after almost a year of unprofitable operation, Pleasure Island started making. Big changes, and the first order of business was to completely close off access to the island at 7 p.m. and require a ticket to enter it. So guests could still eat at Portobello Yacht Club or Fireworks Factory or the Ampocilly for free, but passing through the newly installed turnstiles required a ticket, um, famously sold from the booths converted from the Fort Wilderness Railroad passenger train. I was going to insert that there, how if you didn't, but I knew you knew you were on it. So yes, yes, that is one of the things we talked about on our Fort Wilderness Railroad episode way back when. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were, there were some of the cars that were converted in, into ticket booths. So was, they were really cool too. Um, and for $9 and 99 cents, revelers could now access all of the islands clubs for a single price. I love that you said revelers cause that's only a term that is used one night a year. <laughs> um, so children under 18 were no longer allowed onto the island at all. So no kids. And uh, all of the unique experience that, that were offered to parentless teens that we talked about in mm-hmm. the first episode were either modified or completely eliminated. So Zephyr's Rock and Roller Dome removed the roller skating rentals and it became Zephyr's Rock and Roll Beach Club, um, which means they only had to change the neon part of the sign because they could leave the rest of it alone. <laughs> Do you know if they started to hype any of the child 
services at this time too. What was the um, the Neverland over at Polynesian? Actually, I they I do have I have several Pleasure Island brochures in front of me, and yes, they do actually mention the Neverland Club. They do, yeah, yes. Uh, Come on drop the back of one of them. Yep. Right, because then the question becomes: Well, if the kids aren't allowed, what the heck do I do with them? Right, right. No, really yeah, they they closed that gap. <laughs> and kids, this was before the days you could set half of these kids in front of a tablet or an Xbox and let them go to town for for seven hours while you know five six seven hours while mom and dad went out dancing and and, and a nice dinner out. So that's true. Neverland Club had to be something. I mean, they always had the stuff. We talked about the pirate excursion, right? You know, the Coke bottle and then the, the uh, digging on the island and all that stuff. So yeah, but yeah, uh, absolutely. Still, this was really really important at this time. And I'm sure it's in house notes, but this is the gap until they open Disney Quest and Disney Quest, which was a fun visit in addition to the the water parks and Pleasure Island. The dis- admission to Disney Quest was tacked on there, and Disney Quest be one of the problems with Disney Quest. It became a de facto place where older than you know young elementary school children, like middle school and young high school children, parents used to just dump them there. And then go into Pleasure Island, and so you'd have all these unattended children run, running around Disney Quest. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, well, I was never a fan. <laughs> actually, while we're talking about Zephyrs, uh, not to go off into one of my asides, but actually, I finally got some confirmation slash, I guess, uh, what do you call it? Like busting of an old Disney myth. No. Oh. So. For years, I had heard that the reason that roller skating had stopped at Pleasure Island was because uh, the daughter of a high-powered Orlando lawyer broke her leg and the family sued Disney, and that made them shut it off. Now, like a lot of rumors, there was a degree of truth to it, but Wayne Hunt, whose company Hunt Design created the logos and signage for Pleasure Island, actually set the record straight for me. What happened was a Disney legal executive broke his leg on the opening night of Zephyrs. So that's the origin of the story. That's the wrong guy to have break yeah, his really, leg. Yeah, really. Totally the wrong guy. That's not who you want breaking legs. Although as maybe as a good employee. But I mean, it stayed open for a whole year after that. So it, it, it wasn't immediate at least. But that's, that's where that old story comes from. So. Um, other changes. So Videopolis East, which catered to the 1800 crowd and gained a reputation as being the most violent place at Walt Disney World, was shuttered. Um, I always used to hear rumors about fights that broke out in the club. Mm. I, I don't know if it's true or not. So I, I'm going to put this one out to the listeners. How? If, if How? We, yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about first fight club. That's the first rule. <laughs> <laughs> was that even a club there? Wait, am I missing something? <laughs> Well, if any listeners don't want to talk to us about it, don't right. send us an email. That's right. Yeah. Or leave a message for us, for sure. Um, and uh, to give people even more reasons to come back to Pleasure Island, Rick Baseman began bringing in national music acts to perform, uh, included with your admission ticket. So in 1991 and 1992, you could see performers like The Romantics, Garth Brooks, Kansas, The Little River Band, Spyro Gyra, Meatloaf. John Mayall, Cool and the Gang, Lee Greenwood, and even Weird Al Yankovic perform on the newly constructed West End stage, which wow. was located at the the uh, end of the island closest to the Neon Armadillo and Adventures Club. That's not exactly like a you know a twelve thousand seat arena there. It's more like a hundred and twenty yeah. crammed in. <laughs> oh, I, I was going to say that's an intimate setting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
and especially, I mean, you're talk, talking 1991, 92, Garth Brooks, like, he was the biggest act in the nation then. Like, yeah, yeah. Breakthrough success was 89 to 90. So, yeah. 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 Like, he was he was gigantic yeah. by 91. 90. Oh, we're going to have him play this, the end stage. The end stage. Where <laughs> <laughs> it's very chummy for about 500 folks. That's all. Yeah. Very chummy. I, bet, I guarantee there were fights that night. <laughs> Those are brawls when it's a when it's a Garth yeah. Brooks concert. Yeah, brawls. But I I think that really shows how much money and time and effort they were willing to put into, you know, getting acts that would draw crowds. Um, they they tried really really hard to do this. Um, there there were other events that they put on too, like the Sunset Celebration, where they would have oh my gosh like jugglers and the like circus stuff like the whirling wheel of destiny, and. <laughs> Like the same, the Wynn family that performed, I think, at, at the Epcot Circus also performed there. And they would do things like Corvette car shows and all kinds of crazy little events just to draw, you know, locals and uh, and also, you know, people that were on vacation. So um, another thing that was different, uh, especially for Disney, is that carts selling beer and cocktails were added throughout the island outside the clubs. Oh, this um, is when the test tube shots came out too, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Those were dangerous. All, all conveniently located by the queues, so the people waiting in line <laughs> to go into a club and drink could drink while they were waiting in line to go into the they club and drink. drink. They used that same tactic in the lines in Pandora, where they stationed <laughs> Coke, Coke uh, and soft drink carts like halfway through these two-hour-long lines. You get up Smart. there, you just got to go pee. It's, Smart, like, yeah. it's really a bathroom line when you're going into Pleasure Island Club. That's really what it is. It's just a line to use the restroom. They also had tubs of beer on ice uh, set up outside restaurants and even an ice luge for Jägermeister shots outside yes. of Zephyr's. I mean, it's starting to sound like a bad frat party, really. It was, well, let's see. They also had live entertainers like stilt walkers and jugglers. Um, and they also had other pay-to-play mini attractions like a Velcro wall. Yeah, I was just going to say that the Velcro wall now... There's another one I'm going to talk about second, but let's just think about this. You've had a few drinks. The last thing you want to do is either A, get into a Velcro suit and jump against an inflatable wall, or two, get in an Orbitron and be spun yeah. to four axes. It's, it all depends on how many drinks you've had. Tonight. That's true. That's true. That's true. You want to fight a stilt walker and then yeah. jump on a Velcro wall? Go for it. And how in your, in your videos, it's just so loud and obnoxious at that point with everybody trying to do stuff. There's probably a sweet spot, like when you're bowling, where you have just enough alcohol that this stuff sounds like a good idea, but not too much that like you throw gutter balls. Um, yeah, it's it's fast. So the Velcro wall, that started on Letterman, right? He was the first one to do that. I, was it probably, probably the, the first one to do it on television? Yeah. 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 And Todd, can you explain what an Orbitron is for people that might not have ever seen So an Orbitron is uh, this device, much like astronaut training, where you would get strapped into a seat, um, and it looks like you're just getting into a seat with three concentric circles around it, but unbeknownst to the passenger, or beknownst to them, maybe they want to do this, uh, it can spin on three different axes. So they give you a good whirl, and I think some of them the idea was to try to control it. I mean, that's what the astronauts would do, right? This was training for them to come out of an uncontrolled spin. And they would use the joysticks and stuff. But a lot of these ones at amusement places were just for the sheer joy of being rotated randomly on three different axes and <laughs> spinning 
uh, and you know, your hair, if you have long hair, it's going all over the place. And, uh, I, it, it's something that I would see on internet. I, I can imagine on international drive with those, with those human slingshot things too. Yeah. You know? It's a, it's a thrill seekers type attraction, if you will. Yeah. Oh, and we should probably mention for the, vel- for the Velcro wall, it was literally like an inflatable wall, about 20 foot tall that had the positive side of Velcro, I think on it. The hook side had the rough side, I believe. The yeah. rough side, and yeah. then you would, when you paid your money, they would put you into like a jumpsuit that was covered in Velcro, <laughs> and then you would bounce on like the inflatable part of it, and then hit the wall. And try and to so get yourself you could, as high as possible. Yeah, higher turned or like whatever yeah. position do you want to be in? So that was, and those were upcharges. You had to pay, yeah, like five or six dollars or something to do that they had the strongman bell too where you take the hammer and whack it and you know yeah, that's a that that's an ancient carnival, carnival trick yeah it was yeah. very carny yeah um they, they they had guess your weight people oh did they really they yeah uh-huh um, the velcro thing for our younger listeners was in the uh disney i think it was disney blank check he had one of those at his oh, house karen duffy oh. great movie he had it, and it it looked so cool until you saw like you could barely run in the thing and like get a couple bounces and then like uh like just stick against the wall. You kind of look like you're in one of those sumo suits that they have. Yes, you know? it's like one of those. Um, how we talked about Lenny and the Magic Bee last last month. Lenny and the Magic Bee was was that le- that frog thing where you'd pay a couple bucks, you'd whack the lily pad, or you'd whack the pad and try to throw the rubber frog, land it in a in a in a lily or something on this water yeah. pond. That was down in the end. I think that was down near Neon Armadillo, actually. Or Beach Club. It was down near Okay. Club. Yeah, that makes sense. There was a whole bunch of carny kind of stuff games, down yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. But as you said, it was like it was loud and crazy, but you know, people were people were eating it up at that time. Um so it's let's street atmosphere. Right? It's street atmosphere. It is. Right. Absolutely. And you yeah, think absolutely. about it. The shops, there really weren't a lot of shops there if they were open. You know, there were a couple places to eat, but you were there to go to the clubs. So this was a way to keep money coming in as you were as you were moving from club to club. So it's, it was really brilliant marketing when you think about it. Exactly. Just more, you know, and what it felt, it really felt like there was just a party. You're like you were in the middle of this giant party everywhere um, all the time. Uh, let's see. So, so besides the national acts that we mentioned, there were also a staple of regular performers that took to the West End stage, and their performances would be broadcast on televisions placed throughout the island, which in turn would make you go like, "Oh, where's that?" And then it would keep also keep you moving from place to place instead of getting stuck in any particular location for too long. So, just all kinds of brilliant like thoughts about moving people around, and I, I want to give a shout out to. Uh, Curtis and Porter on Twitter, who asked me if we would talk about the band Panama tonight. <laughs> and since we're talking about uh, all the bands that appeared at Pleasure Island, there were a lot of, I assume, local or probably regional bands that played. So I just want to do a quick rundown of some of the bands that you might have seen at Pleasure Island if you were there in the 1990s. And how, how can you can you put an asterisk next to those that are still available for events and occasions? <laughs> yes, we should do that. <laughs> So let's see. At Zephyr's and the Rock and Roll Beach Club, you could have seen Paradise, Sound Society, The Front, Panama, um, who actually did wasn't a Van Halen cover band. That was my first thought. But no, they did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Tremors, Verge, Vergie, and, and Right on Cue. Uh, Overnight Express, Soundtracks, with an X, 
uh, Joe Trippy in Fantasy, <laughs> Aerial View, and Sketches. At the Neon Armadillo, you could see Dave Durham and the Bull Durham Band. So these were shot. These were the ones at the at the actual at the actual at the venues. Clubs. Yeah. Okay, so these were kind at of the, the regulars clubs. that filled in between the big names. Right. So yeah. Hip Shot, Rodeo Drive. Or I wonder if it was Rodeo Drive. I don't know. Important important pronunciation distinction. Uh, Blue River. I love I love this one. Comstock Load. L O D E. Like like as in an ore load. Yeah, load I think so. Hmm. Yeah. Um, at the West and at the West end stage, you you could have seen Gibraltar. I bet they could really rock. Uh, I love this. I don't know anything about this band, but I'm fascinated by the name. Yathu Yindi and high C. Wow. S- spelled like the, like the, the drink? drink high dash C. Yeah. It had to be like a rap group or something. Is it? I need to bring things down for a bit. Okay. Uh, Joe Trippy of Kissimmee, Florida died peacefully in his sleep. Sunday, March 17th, 2019. Oh. He was uh, a gifted and talented entertainer and musician, was awarded a scholarship to the Juilliard School at the tender age of 18, but he declined it in order to tour with the band Spiral Staircase, who had the hit single, I Love You More Today Than Yesterday. Joe may best be remembered for time spent in Miami Beach at his home away from home, the Poodle Lounge at the Fountain Blue, in addition to his shows at Disney's Beach Club and Pleasure Island. Actually, it says Disney's Beach Club, Pleasure Island. I think they mean the Rock and Roll Beach Club. Uh, And he formed his own band, Joe Trippy and the Fantasy. So uh, rest in peace, Joe Trippy. You are gone but not forgotten by those of us talking about Pleasure Island. That's right. In the early 1990s. Another rock god has ascended <laughs> to the heavens. All right. Also on the West End stage, Otmar Liebert, the Mahoney Brothers, Island Breeze. I, I kind of remember them. The Mahoney Brothers are local from here. Oh, really? Yeah, they're from Philly. They're awesome. They do uh, a lot of Beatles covers. and other. They're terrific. All right. Well, there you go. Um, Exodus clouds the sound society band and perhaps the uh, the band that played everywhere always at pleasure island frankie and the west end boys oh they were the fill-in masters right yeah they 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 could be on a stage in a moment's notice across the island (laughs) you need someone get frankie on the phone for frankie will be down there in a minute don't worry the west end boys are almost there so so that's a little rundown of the the many talented acts you no, might the West, have seen. How the West End stage was big because we're going to talk about its its nightly stuff. So, did it rotate through the night at the West End stage, and then it it was standard every night around eleven o'clock? Was there a, a band that always was there at eleven for the countdown? There were usually about two, uh, two to three bands that would play there during the course of the evening, and then uh, when they first started doing the the countdown stuff. Um, it was actually kind of like a a New Orleans style street band. Okay, that would actually wind its way through the entirety of Pleasure Island, starting on one end, and then actually sometimes they would even go into like I can remember being in the Adventurers Club, and they would be in the middle of a show, <laughs> and the band would just come in and completely interrupt 
<laughs> what was going on in the main salon. That's improv in, for you. Yeah, in order to try to get people to come out to the New Year's Eve. Uh, and then eventually it became a stage show with the Pleasure Island um, explosion dancers uh, done to a pre-recorded soundtrack. And, and that's the version that I have the video of that's on our YouTube channel. That answers my question. Yeah, so no, great, great, great question. Um, all right, so uh, the biggest change, though, to all this was bestowing Pleasure Island with a character and a reoccurring holiday that made the guest experience and merchandise a lot more memorable. Uh, so as we mentioned in part one, when the island opened, all the merchandise and pr the promotion was based on the clubs, uh, the clubs and the shops logos and the island's faux refurbished architecture. Uh, they were kind of, you know, they were nice, but they, you know, didn't light the world on fire. Uh, but by the spring of 1990, uh, a new Pleasure Island logo began showing up in advertising and on signs featuring the Funmeister, a modernistic moon-headed figure who is depicted in a dancing pose, still among Pleasure Island's architecture, but surrounded by multicolored confetti. Uh, the logo really made it look like a party was going on and you were going to be right in the middle of it. Now, Todd, I could tell by the look on your face that you're going to draw a comparison with another character Man. from that era. 1988 Mac the Knife came out, right? With So he was a crooner type uh, character along the line. It making, was like a Bobby Darren yeah, type. Yeah. Yeah. And Mac the Knife, a very famous crooner song. Um, yeah, the Funmeister, I mean, I don't know how much fun uh, anybody is with a moon chin. I mean, Leno's pretty funny, but... Uh, <laughs> I've never partied with a guy with a moon chin, but I am willing to learn. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. So um, it was interesting, but what was really, really key about the Funmeister, it was, it was not just, you know, prominent on uh, at the island. He made his way to the tickets and the brochures. It really became the symbol, the logo of Pleasure Island, because... Really, when you think about it, Pleasure Island really didn't have a logo, so to speak. It was so he started, you know, the Funmeister. Hey, let's let's use him to to symbolize what you're going to do. Yeah, it it really gave them a kind of a singular focus character that they could market around, which Disney is great at. Yep. And and then eventually, probably around maybe ninety four, ninety five, he actually started appearing more as a cartoon character. Like besides the that flat sort of logo version. It's like suddenly there was like a more flushed out Disney character version that started appearing on brochures and, yep. and other places too. So query, was there ever a walk around meet and greet character? Oh, wow. Not that I ever saw. Okay. Lost. I'm disappointed by that. Yeah. I'm going to say right now, I'm disappointed. if he served hamburgers it would be great. I could see us <laughs> rewriting the, the heat miser song to like fun, you know, heat and, and winter. <laughs> uh, who was it? Heat and cold miser. You know? Yeah. <laughs> By the uh, Rankin brothers, right? Rankin. Yes. So yeah. uh, the fun, the fun miser. I feel like he could have been there at the start of the night, but if he was there at the end of the night, it could have. It would have been problems. There'd yeah. have been problems. He was looking at somebody wrong. Yeah. yeah. Somebody would have been like, "Get over <laughs> here! The, yeah. Come here, Mister Moon. Let me make you see stars." <laughs> I mean, now, when you look at the it, fun miser, too, fun miser too. He 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 definitely slept during the day. I mean, there's just no. Doubt. Well, I I also appreciate that he classed the place up by putting a suit on. That's true. He could have come That's in just true. shorts and a and, you know, and a tee, or he could have been like a Hawaiian yeah, shirt, like yeah. been this like yeah. Magnum PI guy. No, he classed it up. He put a shirt and tie He's on. He's got I a really bow tie. 
Now there, yeah. there is yeah. an outfit. We need those suits, like and a sneakers. green suit with yeah. a pink bow tie for the next event. Yeah, good stuff. He had a couple different incarnations too. He became, uh, uh, he was very cartoon like, but uh, he also became a little more, what would you say, pop art like when he when it came to the logo. He was a little more cut. Oh yeah, you know. Or, or yeah, he was he was rigid. more of that eighties nineties very contemporary. He was just style. like shapes, like yeah, you know, flat, you know, two D shapes, and then when he got the cartoon thing, he's seems like a little more of a person. Yeah, I like all the the confetti that they put around him with oh, yeah. shapes of musical notes and stars, and and for those kids really... out there that missed the seventies malls and may have missed even the nineties malls, you know, every color of the Funmeister was used in every mall that was built in the late eighties and mid nineties, right? It oh. was teal, yellow, purple. <laughs> it it that is it. that that uh pattern would have made a great carpet. Oh yeah, somewhere. Yep. In an arcade or something. Incredible too. Fiesta Fun Center. Yeah. <laughs> what's interesting too is he doesn't take up. You know, he's on the tickets, but if you look at some of the tickets, you just think it's a moon. You don't really. Your eyes aren't drawn to like because there's so many different shapes, as, as uh, JT said. Yeah, it keeps so. you. If you sit there and look at it, then you start to see like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I see it's this guy, and there's buildings, and there's palm trees. So there's an island, and then okay, so underneath that there's waves so we know pleasure island is an island i also think the other funny thing too sometimes they just used his head (laughs) they didn't use anything else so but uh and that was good enough there was one post that actually managed to stay like uh up like even after pleasure island had closed that had the moon head on it and it was like one of the last vestiges of Pleasure Island before it was all taken down to become Disney Springs. I just have it here. Yeah, it was like the post finally came down. Um, he was he wasn't removed until 2010, <laughs> and unceremoniously <laughs> removed one night. So I, I feel like the Funmeister is missing now. Like his head would be a perfect antenna topper. Oh um, yeah. Oh, like a, little a nice little yeah. like light up uh, you know solar thing on your deck. You know you charge it and then it lights up at night on your in your front porch or something. <laughs> they um they did make a vinylmation of him. I have that in my office. It's oh, okay. That's sitting there. It's amazing. <laughs> um, let's see. So uh, the character's name was plucked from purported island founder Meriwether Adam Pleasure's invented title of the Grand Funmeister. And was seen uh, in the island's historical plaques, which we discussed back in part one of this. Um, but that's really, um, that was really where that kind of came from. They were just looking for a character. They they had a name in what they had already written. They're like, hey, let's make a character, put the name on there, put him on the logo. Boom. Bob's your uncle. We got our we got our marketing and merchandising. Check. Um, so I don't think holiday, Mayweather or Mr. Pleasure would have been nearly as fun, too. So. No, and I think that's... You know, they wrote, we talked about this the last time too, they wrote this enormously elaborate backstory Mm -hmm. that really, because it was just shoved on those plaques, it's like, you know, 95% of the people who went there probably had no clue what was going on, how it related at all. So, again, having this pictorial character that's obvious is a lot better for that. So, yeah, if, if you had, you know, like, Adam Merryweather Adam Pleasure. It's like that. I don't think that would have been a very strong marketing hand. Um, for the reoccurring holiday, Imagineers briefly entertained the idea of making every night Christmas, which I'm sure Brian would have loved. 
I uh, probably would have gone then. Imagine it's <laughs> snowing every night. Yeah. Uh, but then they settled on the idea that every night should be New Year's Eve with a reoccurring countdown, live music, fireworks, dancers, and uh, general reverie at the West End stage every evening, which I think was a great marketing hook. How did um, they confuse those two as one being better than the other? Like, how, like if you said, oh, what could we do to party? You don't go to Halloween or you don't go to, you don't go to something that alienates half of the people that are going there. You know I mean? You go to something that is con- for the con. Well, and it seems like such an obvious good idea because all of the things, you know, New Year's Eve is always associated with partying. Right. There's a countdown. Yeah. There's noise. Like, it's, so it how, seems like obviously the best choice. Yeah. How could that not be the first choice, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, I, it's flag day. Everything. <laughs> 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 now, uh, speaking of holidays, I just shared these with you guys there. I found this series of pins and mm-hmm. there was an Easter fun Meister and a Thanksgiving fun Meister. Oh my God. Was one a turkey the, leg and the other an egg? The Thanksgiving one, he is the head of the turkey. It's the, <laughs> the, the moon head on a turkey body. And then the Easter one, it's the Funmeister moon head with Easter with bunny ears on it. I picture the Kramer uh, turkey, you know, and his head's on the body, yeah. and that's that's what it looks like. He's like, hey, buddy. <laughs> it's so versatile. So besides a great marketing hook, uh, the celebration gave a reason for everyone to stick around until midnight or at least 11 p.m. on weekdays because midnight took place at 11 p.m. Uh, Monday through Thursday for no apparent reason. <laughs> Well, it's a weeknight. It's know. a weeknight. We can't let people up till then. So uh, they didn't really explain in the story why midnight happened at eleven, but eh, whatever. We'll let that one go. Um, I would guess. I'm going to venture here uh, that it has something to do with them knowing that part of their crowd, well, one, the 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 locals had to get up and go to work in the morning, but especially the visiting conventioneers had to get up and make their convention in the morning. So running it till midnight was probably less That's enticing. True. Now, Pleasure Island was often open till 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I maybe it's just they did the celebration. You know, they might have shut down. Maybe they shut down at 1 on the weekdays instead of on uh, oh, and, 2. And, and as I'm assuming, it's like the, the parks, too. There's a certain demographic of people that, that are there that once the fireworks and the celebration happens, they they take off. Yeah, and then and then the real commandos take over. You know, <laughs> I got three more hours here to hit the clubs. Uh, that's right. And then we're going to the Laughing Kookaburra after this because <laughs> it doesn't close the. F- Wasn't that the one that was open to right. like five? Yeah, over at the in the on, in Buena Vista Village. You could call them and what they'd pull a bottle for you or something. Mm. That's what Joe Barlow told us last month is that they would call ahead uh, because last call there was I forget I get maybe it was two. But they would call over and you could order things by phone, like at quarter to two, and they would set all your drinks up so that you could come in after two and finish them. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. It's terrific. Uh, so uh, this story of the Funmeister and the nightly observances of New Year's Eve, uh, they were kind of needlessly and somewhat awkwardly retconned into the Pleasure Island backstory, where... In the story now, Pleasure meets a tribe of Indians named I-4 that already live on the property, and they <laughs> tell him about this Funmeister god, and they give him a totem, which became the logo. And then there's a separate idea of how Pleasure Pleasure started celebrating New Year's Eve every night after his daughter Miriam was born in February, which broke the pattern of Pleasure and his two sons being born on New Year's Eve. So in order to like keep 
this lie going that all of his kids would be born on New Year's. He made had to make New Year's every night. I uh, just yeah, I'm lost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I, too much. Too much. I I don't know how that story would have any effect on bringing in more tourists, but the rest of the changes absolutely did. Pleasure Island became a hit. People flocked there, uh, and the less an un, the more uninhibited uh, yeah, the more uninhibited atmosphere. Uh, really got them uh they drank and they drank and they drank 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 so i remember going there during this era and if people have an issue with drunks walking around epcot center they would have hated mm-hmm. pleasure island at this time it's always a cleanup on aisle four because oh my gosh i mean because the alcohol was available everywhere I mean, like people were literally drinking everywhere and you you would see people, I would see people that were just absolutely trashed all the time. Um, you know, that, but mission accomplished. <laughs> they, they started making money. Um, as Pleasure Island grew in popularity, the shops and the clubs continued to evolve to meet the expectations of the crowds. So on April 7th, 1990, the teen dance club Videopolis East reopened as Cage, which was a European house music club. Um, inside, they kept the chain link fences and the TV monitors from Videopolis. Uh, and they actually had down in the, in the uh, sort of the basement because everything was built on sort of two stories there. Um, they had those like lightning jars from the spaceship Earth when you first get on the cars and there's those little effects that are like in the walls as you're supposedly going into the time machine so you could walk up right next to those and see what those looked like which was pretty cool um and and that club became a favorite for the 21 and over alternative music fans because that was really one of the few places in central and west florida where you could even hear that kind of music so it was like all that like house stuff from from the early 90s that i don't know yeah are you ready for this yeah yeah um, oh, the jam. <laughs> <laughs> um so that only lasted about two years that closed in january of 1993 uh and depending on who you talk to it was either because the house music crowd was notorious for bringing drugs into the club or it was because they just weren't spending enough money on drinks to make the club profitable or uh, both or, or both right maybe maybe both um that club closed and reopened as the 70s club and then finally got its permanent name eight tracks the 70s um, club huh that was the original work working name for yeah for what a, a name <laughs> i found that on a back of a ticket saying admission to the 70s club and mannequins was for 21 years and old 21 well, years we couldn't up come up old. with anything else but well it, it tells you what it is i suppose yeah it, maybe it was like chicken and fish it was the placeholder until they could come up <laughs> with eight tracks what, Whatever they wanted to call it. So, I mean, A-Trap is a brilliant name, right? Yeah. Oh, perfect. And with an X, so yeah. that way it's trademarkable. It's Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 8-Tracks got some minor interior design upgrades, uh, but more importantly, it was a hit with the baby boomer crowds who weren't as interested in hearing the latest music at Mannequins and had plenty of spending money for sugary drinks with names like the Bell Bottom. Um, so if you did it so, now, it would be like, what would you call it? Yeah, like Yacht Rockers, or right? right? Something like that. Uh, I mean, if you did it now at the same look back period, it would be like the 2000s club. Yeah. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah, that's true. That's right? true. That's like, true. 
Yeah. Hey, we're gonna. It's 2002 every night here, Chiefs. <laughs> you know, it's cafe 80s, but it's not done well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Zephyrs, uh, Rock and Roll Beach Club. They dropped the fake radio station lettering and just became Rock and Roll Beach Club. And they got and rid of the whole alien thing too, right? Was they that, did. They, they did. did. Instead, they got like the smiling shark breaking mm-hmm. through a life preserver. That's the one uh, I remember. Which I think uh, was more than somewhat reminiscent of a popular character from Ron John Surf Shop's merchandising. Oh yeah, uh, at the time, there was this shark that they had that kind of reminds yep, me yep. an awful lot of that. So uh, um, even the whole logo, it looks like something you would put on a shirt at Ron John or, or Hogan's yeah. Beach Club or something. Totally, totally. And we talked how that was the club that <clears throat> you had to climb stairs to go back down into the club. <laughs> Yes. Right. <laughs> All of the, a lot of the clubs there were really big on second floor entrances mm-hmm. and then walking downstairs in order to get into the club environment itself. It's almost like they wanted to give you the preview of what, you know, oh, we're going to go down there or, you know. Yeah. I mean, they were all very dramatic. Like all, yeah. all of the, yeah. Meriwether's Market, uh, Pleasure Island's counter, counter service food court. I guess that wasn't profitable enough. I'm I'm trying to actually think in Pleasure Island why you would need a food court. Because, you know, you had the restaurants like Fireworks Factory. Like, that makes sense. But there's so much dining anyway. I, I assume that just wasn't, that just didn't do well. Just to sell sticky rice and Pepto-Bismol. I mean, that's really yeah. all you needed. <laughs> so after a brief stint as the Moonlight Cafe, it was renovated and reopened as the Pleasure Island Jazz Company. Uh, and on past episodes, we've talked about Lake Buena Vista's long history as being kind of the jazz hotspot for Central Florida. And this venue was kind of the next step in that legacy. So they hosted both the national uh, and local uh, jazz acts, uh, including then current president of Walt Disney Theme Parks and Resorts, Judson Green, mm. who was an aspiring pianist uh, training from the age of four on uh, to become a professional musician. Uh, he actually went to college. He was going to become a pro musician and then he switched to accounting and then became like the CFO for the Walt Disney company and eventually took over Walt Disney world. But he would come in and do sessions at night and play at the pleasure Island jazz company. It was good. Pretty cool. Yeah. I actually have a CD recorded live at the pleasure Island jazz company that, uh, that was released nationally. That's got a bunch of jazz bands and he plays on it. So, so besides all the restaurant up, you know, sorry, um, besides all of the uh, club upgrades, there were also updates to the shopping kind of often in the 90s. And there's one store in particular that I think people will remember because it's signed, uh, found new purpose and lived on for a really long time. Um, there was a store called Island Depot that sold, I think it, that's the one that sold the, the PI merchandise. Um, that became a Dick Tracy store in 1990 when that movie came out and they parked some of the cars from Disney MGM outside, but it got replaced in 1991 by Jessica's, uh, from who framed Roger rabbit. And, and the big draw there was that they built this gigantic 30 foot tall Jessica rabbit whose leg would swing back and forth. Yes. That would that would light up at night. That was kind of like sort of a Las Vegas style thing. Yeah, amazing. Um, that character uh, and most of the merchandise in that store. It's interesting. They actually 
commissioned um, artist um, Mark Martelsonian. Hang on, Marderosen. Okay, they actually commissioned artist Mark Mardosian to create the merchandise that was in that store. So they actually that wasn't stuff that was available elsewhere because Roger Rabbit was big. That was all things that were made specifically for that store. And they had nightgowns and negligee and wow. of course cups and all kinds of other stuff. But they they really pushed that like to an a, an adult edge. Um and after that's that store only lasted as long as, you know, the about a year is, you know, as much as the Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, popularity kinda hit. Um, but they ended up keeping that sign and putting it in a different position, and that sign stayed there for years. And I, I, it's, that's one of those parts of Pleasure Island that I think has kind of indelibly burned yeah. in my brain. I, I just sent you, gentlemen, I sent you the photo in, in, in our Slack channel. I'm sending you two here, but the first one is a picture I took in April 1998 of, of the Jessica Rabbit. And at that point, the starburst above it... Um, was the neon that it, it was kind of go around, make a circle of it. And her, I don't think believe her leg or any neon was doing anything else at that point. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But that... I remember, cause I was like, I got that picture. I was like, I want to make this an animated GIF, you know, <laughs> never did. <laughs> if somebody wants to let me know. It's still a good time to do it. That's right. Um, so that, that takes us into the 1990s and it's pleasure Island is hopping. Um, I think what's interesting, though, is even um, the people that that built Pleasure Island, uh, I think there's an interview with Rick Rothschild where they had kind of figured that most sort of, you know, club establishments or or uh, I guess places to party like this, they usually only have about a 10 year lifespan until they start to decline in popularity. So even as they built Pleasure Island, they kind of knew that there would sort of be an end date in mind, or at least there would have to be an opportunity to kind of reinvent itself again. So um, there were some changes that happened in the 2000s as, as it kind of like filled out the last legs of its life. So the next time that we get together, we're going to talk about uh, the two biggest clubs in Pleasure Island, which uh, we don't have to... I, it would take another hour to talk about them tonight. I'm not going to do that to people. So uh, that's the Adventures Aww. Club and uh, <laughs> Comedy Warehouse. <laughs> Those deserve they they deserve get their own episode. Yeah, they absolutely deserve their own episode. There's just yeah. so much interesting stuff. I do want to add a postscript before you leave here, uh, Pleasure Island tonight, because we have to talk about Art Levitt, the furniture salesman, who became the guy that re that that oversaw the reimagining here. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the rest of his career. Uh, while at Disney, he oversaw the uh, the the uh, boardwalk, uh, the initial concept of the boardwalk. Uh, he was in charge of the whatever the Lake Buena Vista Club, you know, resort was called back then. Uh, during his time at PI. Uh, he oversaw that. He was also uh, one of the key guys on Disney Vacation Club when they launched that, uh, presumably for marketing and management. And then he left Disney in 1993 to run Hard Rock Cafe, the entire Hard Rock Cafe organization, which he did for three years and then came back to Disney. 
after a, a period of time at Disney, he then left and started his own consulting firm, which he still has today, called Four Gems, uh, which is a venture partner. And they have an animation lab and uh, is a consulting practice focused on the improvement of business and industry. But uh, in the interim, he was also the president and CEO of Fandango Inc. So this guy is uh, parlayed. Uh, and by the way, just for a point of clarification, he wasn't selling a sofa to Michael Eisner like for Michael Eisner's house or his office. Michael Eisner was there buying sofas, like furniture on behalf of Disney. Oh, uh, okay. So, so it wasn't like he walked into... Bergman's uh, furniture store. It was like on the corner in LA. I was like, "Hey, I need a new settee for my dining room." <laughs> so it was an institutional sale. It was. He was, you know, probably discussing buying in bulk. Okay. He sufficiently impressed him, and uh, the man's had a thirty-year career in the entertainment industry and is apparently well off. So that is fantastic. Him. Well, we're going to have to try to talk to him now, aren't we? I we're, we're going to have to at least buy a sofa from him. <laughs> It would have been better than that sofa at Retro Magic, I'm sure. That was a nice sofa. So sinky. Uh, and on that note, uh, we will listen to the countdown to New Year's Eve. Oh, yeah, we got to do that. That's, that's yeah. excited. How, how many of you guys did it? Did, who, who went there and, and participated in the countdown? I was one of them. I was there. I did it. 98. When did oh. the countdown end? Did they do it until... Uh, at zero. No, no, no. <laughs> he means when did they stop doing it oh, chronologically? Oh. Like, what year? Did it last until 2008 when they closed Pleasure Island? Or had it been cut off earlier than that to save money on fireworks? That I, is a great question. I vaguely remember it. And it could be, you know, those those vacation planning videos tattooed in my brain. But I recall it in early 2000s, like 2004 three in that uh, range uh, yeah i will not remember the year i do remember going well actually uh i know i went with rob and our friend matt was with us and i think that trip was 2003 or four and i that that was my exposure to the adventures club at which point adventures club which we'll cover next month was totally ruined by adventures club enthusiasts who stepped on every joke and jumped in front of everything that the actors were doing, uh, which was to great merriment for them and total confusion to people like me who were like, what is going on here? Uh, so we'll cover that when that comes. But I remember uh, us either missing the fireworks or barely getting outside. But I do. I did go to the comedy club, walked into the Adventures Club, Walked in and out of eight tracks and maybe mannequins or one of the, it was at a point where you didn't need to, but I do remember being there. Oh, one thing I did forget to mention, I think another thing that uh, probably helped to bring a lot of people back is they actually started selling Pleasure Island annual passes in the fall of 1991. Oh. Um, I happened to have one. <laughs> <laughs> I was apparently, uh, I did not realize this. But I found out because I, I still have like a bunch of my ephemera. I must have been one of the um, charter annual pass holders because I have a, a I have a letter personally signed by the Funmeister. Not that I'm trying to brag here. <laughs> That's wow. insane. Like that is actually his autograph. Yeah, here's when he wasn't a walk around character. Yeah, Funmeister has an autograph here. Uh, so they sent me a letter that said, "That's right, the real New Year's <laughs> Eve is around the corner." And of course, as a Pleasure Island charter annual pass holder. 
you've no doubt become familiar with celebrating New Year's Eve in April, August, and December. And they kind of run down all of the uh, exciting things, all the exciting things that they did. And then they tell you, hey, on December 9th, Mark Cohen is performing his hit Walking in Memphis. And I'm walking in Memphis. We're also going to count down New Year's in case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they remind you, they like, don't miss a beat. Make sure you renew your Pleasure Island annual pass anytime before December 31st, 1994. You want to guess what the regular price was? Twenty For an annual pass? For a Pleasure Island only annual pass. It was pretty $79. That, no. For the first, the, so the, for the first year, it was $24.95. Damn. For, you get unlimited. Wasn't visits. it like twenty bucks to go in for one night? Like it was fourteen it was nine ninety nine to go in for one night. So But for, what if you wanted to go to like three clubs? Well, so they moved over to the flat rate pricing. Alright. The Funmeister changed it. What, up. Right. When Funmeister came in, it went from the fourteen ninety five for all the clubs or nine ninety nine. The order changes. Yeah. He's like, let's do this. More fun for all, all, yeah. all fun for all, and all for fun. That so, was actually so for the one price of, his, of two and a half visits. Yeah, you could go for all year. You could go all year. Mm-hmm. That seems like a deal. It's a deal. We didn't touch on this episode, uh, did we? On the cast member nights, right? Like they they got in for free on I think it was Thursdays. Thursdays, was it? yeah, yeah. So Thursdays were always a big night there. It was, and they actually did other special events. So the reason they sent this letter is like they're going to sell you on an, like an upcharge. New Year's Eve on New Year's Eve uh, event. And they also often did uh, like special Halloween parties and mannequins uh, that were themed uh, or some, uh, they, they did a thing where they made Pleasure Island, the Pleasure Isles on uh, St. Patrick's Day. Okay. <laughs> so they had a, you know, a bunch of little special stuff too. Uh, but yeah, pass, yeah, as an annual pass holder, just for Pleasure Island, that was a, uh, that was a lot of fun. Very we cool. went quite often in the early '90s because uh, it was there was really no place like it. Other, you know, everybody had their bars in Tampa, and you had your single one-offs. But there weren't many places, you know, other than Rosie's and Pleasure Island, where you could go do a whole bunch of different things uh, I, all on the same night. I think it was a little different too. It was, it was a trusted level of fun that was different, right? As much as it was fun and a little, yes, people had too much to drink. I think there's there came a different level of trust with it where families wouldn't mind their kids being dropped off for it. You know, 21 and over I'm talking about. And even 18 and over. <laughs> Not dropping you. your six-year-old six, six off, yeah. <laughs> well, th- that is an interesting point because, you know, there is uh, certainly a stigma involved with drinking yeah. and going out and partying. Uh, well, that, that's, I mean, that's the genesis of Disneyland and all of these Disney theme parks is that they take something... That was a setting that was previously seedy in in a certain way uh, and try to clean it up and offer you the same thing in a cleaner, nicer, safer atmosphere. Uh, and Pleasure Island tracks with that. And I, I, you know, I never went to Rosie O'Grady's, but I assume that, you know, there was a certain degree of parking lot danger or anything else that goes with <laughs> Those kinds of environments that you're not going to find in the Lake Buena Vista shopping village parking lot when you're stumbling to your car. Right. That is true. That is true. And uh, we will talk about that very specifically when we get into Comedy Warehouse. Yeah. And so I'm curious then about 
when City Walk opened for Universal because that's just it's a history I'm not that tuned into, but it is. So that opened with uh, Islands of Adventure. That's what I figured. So that was 1999, I think. All right, I'll verify and they, that. And they have a whole like Mardi Gras type thing they do down there, right? Like it in in you know for Universal. They don't. That's they do a Mardi Gras event. Uh, at Universal, at the parks, at right? the parks. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, it was actually um, Pleasure Island where that was done first. They they actually brought in a crew with a um, with a float from New Orleans in the early '90s and had them throw beads there. I'll I'll uh, I'll share this one with everybody. It says, "Love the podcast." Uh, when I'm not listening to the podcast, I occasionally watch old episodes of This Old House. Uh, and what appears to be in the background of one of the shots is a from this old house is the float decorations that formerly hung in the Sassajula float works. I never say that right at Port Orleans French Quarter. I've attached the screenshots and a poor quality photo uh, of the figure uh, from before the dining room before it was undecorated. And they took away the some of the New Orleans theming there. Uh, so he says the episode was filmed at an actual float works in New Orleans called Mardi Gras World. The jester prop acting as a sign out front is also reminiscent of the prop behind the registers. And I'm calling the prop in question. I can't pronounce Dionysius. D-I-O-N-I-S. Yeah, okay. Yeah. On account of his grapes. Another figure looks familiar, but I couldn't recognize his existence. Maybe you'll recognize me. Send us a series of questions. Do you know if the Imagineers sourced some of the floats and props from Port Orleans or if the props were made for Disney? Uh, my family thinks it can't possibly be the same prop. I disagree. Well, clearly looking at the photos, which we'll share with the show notes, they're, they're the exact same yeah, thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same mold, the same design. Uh, you know, they're the same. So, uh, and the funny thing is the guy's head also looks like uh, the ghost of Christmas future. In uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol, it's like a giant bearded head. But I don't think that's who it is. I think it's Mardi Gras World is a tourist attraction located in New Orleans. Guest tour, a 300,000 square foot working warehouse where floats are made for Mardi Gras parades. There we go. So it's it's legit. Stage our own Mardi Gras. Every parade. month we have like another, uh, another ad to our road trip, right? Yeah. We're going to be like Charles Corralt. We'll just all pile into a into a, a motorhome <laughs> and right. we'll spend like three years driving around the country on the road uh, from, you know, a million downloads worth of uh, podcasts uh, that, that we, you know, we've picked up things where we need to go and stuff we need to check out. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, and thank you, Hal, uh, for doing all this research. I know you're, you're not done with it by any means. As you as you mentioned, we're going to be going back to uh, we got more to talk about Adventures Club and mannequins and other things. But um it was a great place. I had a great time. I know then uh, Planet Hollywood came in a little later. Then we had the addition of uh, Downtown Disney, and, and it really started that it wasn't its own thing anymore. It became a pass-through to get to Downtown Disney, which was interesting how, how that Yeah, it sort of became this weird, you know, it was a pickle in the middle. They, but originally, the only thing on the other side of it was the AMC theaters. Yeah. Yeah, and then they built the West Side. Yeah, and then as soon as West Side came in, it's like, oh... That's fancier than this thing that's in the middle. <laughs> it's all Gloria Estefan's fault. People wow. would just blow through Pleasure Island during the day and like not even stop at any of the shops. It was like just this DMZ you had to walk through between the two parts that you wanted to be in. Yeah. 
and now it's kind of like, well, now what do we do? <laughs> so excellent. Well, again, Hal, thank you very much for your time putting that all together. Appreciate it. Um, how do we have any new designs actually for our, uh, for our, our shirts and such, anything new coming out? I have to look, you know, I know we got a ton of great suggestions and I got to go through. I apologize. I have been busy, uh, doing actual works stuff after no, a, a year. There's of, no, no room for that. Hal. Yes. We'll, not, we'll have none of that here. Uh, but I, I know we have, uh, I know we have some, uh, had got some great suggestions. So I'm going to go through and, and actually if you have suggested, uh, shirts in the past, other than zippy, the spoon boy, <laughs> and I've sounded enthusiastic about it on the show, Please drop us a line at podcast at retrowdw.com and jog my memory so I can create a list and uh, start making some more shirts for everybody. We don't want uh, Lenny and the Magic Bee. We're not doing that one. I didn't. I didn't hear a call out for that one and Zippy. So it's, they're they're basically on the same on the same plane. So. That's that's on my B list. Yeah, it really is. When we when we when we get to it. when nothing else is selling, then then we bring out Lenny. So, all right. Well. Uh, we appreciate everybody listening. We should let everybody know, too. Um, by the time this podcast drops, we'll have done another movie night. But as always, keep an eye on us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, where we're having home movie nights. We do those from time to time where we preview uh, uh, some of the movies that we've seen and let them run in entirety uh, after we've transferred them and digitally restored them. Um, after you listen to this one, you hopefully you've been able to join us for Attack of the Fifty Foot Reels, which is which is coming up next just next week. Um, or you can always go back and watch them. Yeah, after the fact, so. absolutely, go back and watch it. Um, Attack of the Fifty Foot Reels is just as it sounds. It's all fifty foot reels that people took because like the only three minutes that they took over their entire vacation. Uh, and we have some great ones in there, and uh, we just got a lot back recently too. I just. Uh, uh, restored a number of different films. I've got another couple of reels to go out. So, um, and as always, it is years of the film, um, part two here in 2021. And, uh, we're constantly posting new videos and films. So there's a bunch of new films coming out. Uh, and then we've every week, every week, something new comes out and we're, comes we're out. plowing through Howe's backlog too. And we had people, Mark Marcusi sent us things. So those are coming out so much so much I just, great stuff and i just had a listener today coordinate sending me uh three sets of slides from his family vacations in the 70s and 80s i think the last one he said was 91 oh, okay he has a set of slides so they're being shipped from delaware up to me so that we'll scan and restore them and send them back to the fella but we'll share them with everybody in our archive and uh, if you have slide sets from your Family vacations to Walt Disney World, by all means, uh, get in touch with us and we'll arrange to scan those and restore them and get them back to you uh, and uh, do a nice job with it. And we do that uh, at no cost. So uh, consider that. Don't send us any pan of you slides or professionally done tourist, uh, you know, souvenir slides. Those are all, have all been converted and are out there. But uh, your own personally taken slides, we'd love to do that. And I also at this time want to shout out and thank you to volunteers. We, we put a call out for volunteers. We put a call out for volunteers frequently. We did it on a movie night a little while back. Uh, we've had a few volunteers uh, knocking out uh, updated show notes on some of our older shows. They're going back and listening and uh, giving it uh, the dictionary treatment, uh, really going through and, and chronicling everything we talk about and making sure the links are updated, everything like that. We have people tagging photos for us in our, you know, we have the, the, our archive is 
approaching, I think, 13,000 photos now that we've restored and and uploaded. Uh, I've added three or four hundred more in the last couple of weeks uh, from sets that have come in. Brian just keeps giving us more work to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's great. But but really, you know, uh, if you're interested in, in volunteering, We've got a pretty simple sheet that we send you that tells you how to do either of those things. So just reach out to us, uh, and I'll be happy to, to sign you up and, and get you help in doing that stuff. But uh, I really do have to thank the folks who've been doing it uh, and helping us out. Uh, it's really been a big help. All right. And if you can't volunteer, as always, we do appreciate any donations and support you can give us at retrowdw.com forward slash support us or at lbbhistory.org forward slash donate. All proceeds that we receive going to keeping the show on the air, allowing us to buy uh, slides, as Brian talked about, films. And um, in this case, JT Couser's microphone broke. He's using his emergency backup, so we're going to get him a new one for, for next month. So uh, you sound good tonight, I'm having JT. trouble with the radar, sir. That's, that's how he's going to sound. <laughs> that's right. So... Um, so anyway, we will be back next month. Um, I have actually been researching a topic. We're going to dive into Magic Journeys, uh, as well as the Image Works, which was just above the Journey into Imagination ride. So, uh, what park was that in? Tom? It was in two, actually, officially. That's right, it was two for Magic Journeys. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what went in afterwards a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've got that lined up. We have an interview lined up for it. Uh, so it's going to be a great show. We're going to get that to you uh, in the next month or so. All right. Well, with that, thank you very much for listening. Give us a shout out on iTunes if you can or wherever your favorite podcasting app is. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month. With that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at WDWMS, Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at GoAwayGreen, JT Couser on Twitter at LS1JT and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt, 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. 